John chapter 12, A Voice from Heaven, part 2. Of course, uh, I didn't only look at the voice, I'm looking at the voice in the context in which it occurs. John 12, you know, comes in various levels of context. The broadest, most all-inclusive context would be uh, the entirety of Scripture. It's also in the New Testament. It's also one of the gospel accounts. It's also in John 12. It's also happens to be in Jerusalem during the Passover season, the last week of our Lord's earthly sojourn, which is packed. Uh, that last week was packed with a lot of things, including the Lord realizing that the hour had come. When he says that in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It comes right on the heels of Jewish disciples telling Jesus, Gentiles want to see you. The response of the Lord is basically to say, now it's time. Now, the older commentators that see that going uh, see the Gentiles wanting to come and talk to the Jewish Messiah, say, the Old Testament prophets' words are coming to fulfillment here. Uh, the Messiah has a remnant of Jews around him, and then out of that small group is going to come the Christian church throughout the ages. And it starts with these Gentiles. You know, Take that for what it's worth. But the Lord did use that to use the language from Daniel 7 about himself, son of man, the hour has come that he should be glorified, his death, his resurrection is going to bear fruit. He gives himself away. He calls us to do the same. He does it to earn our life. We do it to show gratefulness for the life that he gives us. Then he says, my soul, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again is what happened if we were there. We would have heard Jesus say, Father, glorify your name. Then we would have heard this voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and glorify it again. Very mysterious words. Uh, I mentioned this morning we're not Mormons. We don't believe God the Father has a physical body and therefore physical uh, vocal cords, physical lungs that, and muscles that bring air in and then air goes out over organs and sounds come out. He has lips, he has teeth, a tongue, a mouth. But the Bible uses um, creaturely things to signify something true about God. Here, it uses a created noise that's formed into distinct sound that goes through the waves and triggers ears, and then those triggered ears send signals to the brain that recall when I hear that noise, it is actually a word in Hebrew or Aramaic, and it signifies something. Okay, so this is a created medium through which God is trying to reveal something about his relation with 
God the Father, with the Son. That's why I said this is weird. It's very unique and only happens the voice from heaven confirming and teaching, revealing something about father-son relationship happens three times at the baptism, at the beginning of the Lord's ministry, at the transfiguration toward the end, and here at the beginning of the last week of his life on the earth. Jesus, you remembered, said, the voice didn't come because of me or for my benefit, like I needed it. Oh, now I really know that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says, no, it came for your sake. Now, the people were saying various things. It was thunder. It was an angel. Neither of those responses are the worst possible responses because they are kind of connected to what God has done in the past. Uh, Roaring thunder connected to Sinai. Uh, Angels as created messengers between God and and men created in his image. Um, But the problem is this. Although those two answers, thunder and angel, aren't like, you know, horrible or out left field, disconnected from God's previous ways among men, the fact that Jesus says, it didn't come for me but for your sake, kind of highlights how, how bad it actually was. They didn't realize what was going on. A distinct voice, audible sound, that was made in such a way as that triggered the memories of these people that spoke whatever language it was, Hebrew or Aramaic, said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That's indisputable. Nobody can argue with that. Instead of contemplating, instead of stopping, saying, this doesn't happen very often, I, I should pause and not say anything. Instead of doing that, those two other options came out. Now, the reason why I say Jesus' words, this voice did not come because of me but for you, kind of makes it worse, puts their responses in a worse light because the voice occurred to teach them something that they obviously didn't learn. They didn't say, well, we're getting a crash course on you know, Trinitarian theology and incarnational theology, like I said earlier. They attributed what heaven intended as a revelation of something about the relation between the incarnate son and the eternal father, instead of their learning something like that, um, they, they, they attributed a divine thing to a creaturely thing. That's basically what they did. God is using created means, mechanisms, to reveal something about the relation between father and son, and they're saying that's not what it is. Okay, That, that kind of puts it in worse light, huh? And then we start talking about... Um, we didn't start talking about it. I was preaching this morning about this. You know, we don't want to be too hard on these people. 
but we want to learn what we ought to learn from it. Now, I think what's interesting here is when all this is said and done, Father, glorify your name, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. If we go down to verse 30, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. It's as if the voice occurs, the people give their opinions. Jesus said, didn't come from me for my sake, but for your sake. And then he picks up where he left off. I think that's what's happening here. He's describing this now condition. First it was, now my soul is troubled. And this comes after verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now my soul is troubled. Now is the judgment of this world. I think these are all connected. I think it's a, it's a, it's a progressive commentary on the fact that he's going to be um, crucified. And through his crucifixion, crucifixion, and its entailments, crucifixion, thank you, uh, and what comes as a result, my wife's not here to correct my farmer boy's English. Um, through his crucifixion, I wonder if crucifixion is a word. It is now. Through his crucifixion, uh, certain results come of it. Certainly, the glorifying of the Son of Man, and in the same acts that the Son of Man gets glorified, guess who gets glorified? The name of the Father. There's, there's something interesting there too. Through whatever acts the Son of Man produces glorifying saints, that is, saints who recognize his true identity and worship him for who he is, through those same acts, the Father gets the same glory. Creaturely praise and recognition of these two distinct divine persons in the one divine nature. So I think this is a, a continuation. All this should be, in one sense, looked at together. The side sto- show is really is the voice from heaven and the response of the people there. That's kind of like a side part of the, what's going on here. Because Jesus says, I didn't need the voice from heaven. What I'm saying, I could have said it without the voice from heaven. I know what's going on here. The incarnate son of God is going to crush the head of the serpent. And you know what's going to happen through his crucifixion. Somehow, some way, he overcomes all obstacles and actually becomes the mediatorial ruler of the not just the church. Everything. That's weird. All authority has been given unto me. Um, and then somehow, some way, through his crucifixion, the ruler of this world, ew, the usurper, who has usurped rule, who first beat God, actually, God's vice-regent, Adam, in a garden through a woman. 
I love women, by the way. But here's what God does. God beats the devil through a woman, right? Through the seed of the woman. There's the redemptive reversal irony that's going on there. Weakness is actually the means through which power is secured. This is this is last Adam here, right? Paul calls Jesus that. Remember mature apostolic reflection on the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of our Lord isn't in the Gospels, although some of it's there. It's more in Acts and the Epistles. Then is when they connected all the dots. And so when they look back, and Paul does this in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, he looks at the first Adam and the last man, the first man and the last second man, first Adam and last Adam. You know how he does that? Adam the first was this, that, and the other. Adam the last is greater, similar, but greater than. Adam the first lost the first battle against the devil in the garden when he questioned the veracity of the word of God at the suggestion of his wife. He did it in a garden. Instead of utilizing the trees God gave to him properly, he used the trees God gave to him, at least one of them, improperly, and a curse was pronounced upon the serpent, the wife, the husband, the earth. So this last Adam, when he comes on the scene, he's got to deal with all that stuff somehow, some way. I think what's happening here is he's given us in seed form. I'm going to do this. Here's what's going to be affected as a result of my, of my being lifted up, my crucifixion. There's all kinds of things that are going to be happening here. Now, a male son of God in communion with God is going to actually rule the devil and beat him. And then get spoils from the devil's kingdom, sinners. He's going to effectually call or draw people from all nations of the earth to himself. And this now, that this is going to happen, is a long now, isn't it? I said it this morning. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again echoes into our meetings 2,000 years later. I know I've said this before, but we really need to think this. This relatively obscure son of a Jewish carpenter is worshipped as the second person of the Trinity all over the world now every single week. That's no small ripple effect from his three-year earthly ministry almost 2,000 years ago. So we should take that as, you know, this, this is pretty huge. He said, the Son of Man is going to be glorified, made much of by creatures, 
The Father is going to be glorified. The Father says, I've already glorified my name and what you've already done, and I'm going to do it in the future. And lo and behold, it's being done all over the place, all over the world. So anyway, it's a huge thing that's going on here. Now, I haven't really defined all these, these three things in verses 30, um, 31 and 32. They're great. They're marvelous. They're wonderful. Judgment of this world, ruler of the, this world will be cast out. Drawing of all peoples or all men, all kinds of men to himself. The Son of Man will be glorified and the Father's name will be glorified by the crucifixion of the Son of God incarnate, which has these three wonder-producing effects. Judgment, judgment of the world, casting out of the ru- ruler of the world, drawing of sinners to Jesus from all over the world. I really haven't defined what those things mean, but it sounds to me, whatever they mean, it's good stuff. This is gospel kind of good news for us. The judgment of the world, the casting out of the ruler of this world, and the drawing of sinners are three effects, not the only three, connected to the crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God. So in the next few weeks, I have to show you the connection. If, I, if I'm going to be crucified, and I am, I'm not going to be stoned, I'm going to be crucified, interesting, um, by the way, the Jews every once in a while did stone people back in ancient um, uh, Rome. Every once in a while they did, right? Because remember in the Mario's reading, well, we can't do that. It's against the Roman law. The Romans turned their noses sometime. Stephen was stoned and nobody, as far as we know, got crucified for murdering Stephen. Remember in the book of Acts. But he knows here that crucifixion is the way of his death, not stoning for blasphemy, which they tried to do while he was living. He knows it's crucifixion, and he connects with his crucifixion these three wonder-producing effects, judgment of the world, casting out of the rule of the world, and the drawing of sinners to himself. Now, I say this. Even though I haven't clearly defined what those three things mean, those three results of our Lord's death mean, merely the reading of them, and I've said them over and over again because in the next few weeks I'm going to drill them in your head. The judgment of this world, the ruler of this world is cast out, and the drawing of all men. Just the reading of that, you should conclude at least three things. One, Whatever they mean, it must be really important and necessary for the salvation of sinners. Whatever judgment, now comes the judgment of this world, or now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now I will draw all peoples to myself. Whatever those three things mean, they must be important, and they must be essential for the safety and security and securing of the end of the incarnation, namely, redeemed sinners in glory. This is necessary to that. He has to go through this. That's why his soul's troubled on the one hand, and that's why his rationality gets the best of him and says, glorify thy name. Because these things have to be gone through to secure what he came to secure, and that is he came to secure the new heavens and new earth and populated with 
sinless sons of God in communion with God. But to get there, he has to, he's got to undo what Adam did and do what Adam didn't do. He's got to deal with Adam's sin and guilt and the usurped authority of the devil on God's world. You see what Adam was to do? He was to, he was to protect, protect the, the special place, the Garden of Eden, from the attack of the devil. He didn't do it. And then this usurped authority, cursed and usurped authority, is assumed by the devil. So whatever this is, it must be really important and necessary. Second, just reading these three things, we have to conclude this is God's plan for our salvation. Okay? If we're going to be saved, it, this has to happen. We can't do it. He's got to do it. Father, glorify your name. And the third thing is that God wants us to believe the meaning of these words. Whatever the words mean, they're given to us so that we might understand their meaning, right? And so in the next couple of weeks, two or three weeks, I'll be expounding on the meaning. Now, just briefly, note John's explanation of verse 32 and verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So lifting up is a verbal sign signifying crucifixion. So he's using words to explain the type of death he would die without using the explicit word crucifixion. He's using different words that mean the same thing. I'm going to be physically lifted up onto a cross and be cursed, basically. Okay? It's not just that uh, if, I, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, uh, if I ascend to heaven... Suppose you could read it that way. I don't think it fits because he says here, this he said signifying, verbally signifying by what death he would die. So it's referring to his death, not his ascension. He's going to be lifted up from the earth. By the way, have you ever heard that language before? Lifting up from the earth. Moses lifted up something way back there that is connected to Jesus being lifted up. We'll see that when we get there. So this is a verbal sign signifying crucifixion if I be lifted up. So it's clear that Jesus was using words as signs which signified his death by crucifixion though without using the word crucifixion itself. So if I say crucifixion it's okay, because that's what he means. I think our Lord often speaks in enigmatic words to get us to think hard and deep about what he's saying. You can see that a lot when Jesus is asked a question in his answers. Sometimes he's asked a question in such a way he could answer just yes or no, but often he doesn't, right? He gives a, this sometimes weird-sounding responses. Why does this incarnate Son of God do that? Here's here's why he does it. He wants us to think. I, I think. No, I know. He's going to be crucified, and somehow, someway, the results of that death by crucifixion are at least threefold. The judgment of this world, the casting out of the ruler of this world, and the drawing of sinners to Christ for his own glory and the glory of his Father. This is one reason why um, 
Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ and Christ crucified. To Jews, it's foolishness. To Greeks, same thing. It's the power of God, though. It is the mechanism, the means through which all of our ultimate problems are solved is the incarnation, sufferings unto death, even death on a cross. That's why, again, why do we have a Bible? Because God has a plan of redemption. My back's hurting. God has a plan of redemption. And God is publishing his plan of redemption. God's telling us, I have a plan of redemption in both the Old and New Testament. The plan of redemption centers around what? Us. The incarnate one, right? That's what it's... If you read the New Testament, what is, what is it all about? Jesus. He came, he suffered, he died, he buried, he was raised from the dead, and the rest of the New Testament draws out the implications but the New Testament also tells us this. Hey, you remember that thing you guys now call the Old Testament? It's all ultimately about him as well. So that's why every week, what do I remind you of? The target, the goal, the end for which we have a Bible is the revelation of the incarnate Son of God who's going to suffer and then enter into glory and bring many sons uh, to glory with him in the eschatological state, the new heavens and the new earth. If that's why we have a Bible, then we should be kind of coming to, back to that quite often, right? The Bible's not a cookbook for a successful marriage. Right? Or a successful business. Or if you really want to be a successful dentist, you got to read the Bible. You ever heard of the, you know, I only go to Christian dentists. Dentists who are Christian is what they mean. But what, what's a, I, I don't think people mean evil by that. They're saying, I'm going to go to this dentist because he happens to be a Christian. I'm going to pay him a lot of money or my insurance company is going to pay him a lot of money. I might as well give my money to Christians. What if the Buddhist dentist is actually good and the Christian dentist is not good? You know, I think we'd use that term Christian and we attach it to things and it doesn't work that way. The old word Christian meant connected to Christ and we, when we said an institution was Christian, we meant an institution was connected to Christ as its institutor, like the church, like baptism, like the Lord's Supper. Those are, those are Christian things. But there, there are no Christian clothes. Hey, do you have any Christian clothes? Jesus didn't, like, ordain clothes. I'm getting snickers. Some of you are going, you're off the notes. What are you doing? I'm trying to tell you this. The Bible is Christocentric. Its scope, that means its target, its goal, the end for which it exists, is to present to us the seed of the woman, the incarnate Son of God, destroying the works of the devil to take God's people to God's place against all odds and enemies, ultimately those odds and enemies consigned to a place where they 
can't get to us. And he does that through the last Adam. May the Lord bless his word. Let's pray. Father, we do come again for, your, uh, for help. We call upon you to understand these things in a more deeper, robust manner, not only for our own intellectual satisfaction and um, spiritual growth, but so that we can speak, we can talk this way to others, we can uh, give them big picture observations from sometimes very minute details of Scripture. Please help us and glorify your name and the Son of Man as well, helping us to worship you, thankfully. Bless the supper, our singing, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.